This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Business leaders know that more and more consumers are concerned about how the companies they buy from treat the natural world. There's much more consumer scrutiny of what companies are doing these days, so they realize it's a, there's a reputational risk if they do not take care of the environment. But it's also about more than just reputation. There are many legitimate leaders out there deeply concerned at a personal level and also uh, recognizing their responsibility as leaders in this corporate enterprise that really governs the planet and trying to change it. Turns out, doing good things for the climate is good business. If you can make more money with less inputs, that's more profit. That's a good thing for business. Aligning profits with the planet. Up next on Climate One. Can trees and businesses play nicely? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. These days, news headlines and politicians often say that protecting the environment hurts the economy. Sure, it's cheaper to dump waste in the air or water, passing costs on to the public, but companies are increasingly realizing that protecting the environment can also be good business. To talk about nature and markets, Greg is joined by three guests. Gretchen Daly is Professor of Environmental Science at Stanford University. She recently won the $450,000 Blue Planet Prize for her work advancing environmental solutions. Adam Davis is managing partner of Ecosystem Investment Partners, a firm that helps people make money by cleaning up the environment. And Barbara Grady is a senior writer at Green Biz, a news site where she's written about companies changing their ways to reduce the environmental impacts of their operations. Here's our conversation about aligning profits with the planet. Gretchen Daly, let's begin with you. Someone says, ah, the economy and the environment, they're at odds. What's good for the one isn't good for the other. That mindset is so deeply ingrained in our news and our culture. Is it true? It's definitely true when you look back at the 20th century. We pursued an idea of growth kind of at all costs. It's not true for the 21st century. We're opening up in a time when a lot of odds are against us, but where there's incredible innovation and a vision of green growth that allows um, both improvement in human well-being and all the dimensions that really are meaningful of health, economic prosperity and security, and at the same time, <clears throat> a restoration and conservation of the life support systems, the green, that underpins all of our well-being. And we're seeing this vision now um, play out in thousands of what today are basically mostly little experiments, but also some really big mega experiments going on that we'll get into. Well, but Adam Davis, still uh, business world and environmentalists are like oil and water. They don't like each other. They're often, in a, particularly in a polarized society. Does it have to be the, that way? Is there anything in the, do they meet anywhere in the middle? I think they do. One of my fondest memories when I was in the recycling business was lobbying with environmental groups for stricter environmental standards. And you might think, why would a large company in the solid waste business 
be in favor of stricter environmental policies? And the answer was because it was good for our business. You can outcompete through environmental performance. In this case, stricter landfill standards, which were good for the environment, also created competitive advantage for the businesses that would adhere to those policies. It's one example. There are a lot of others uh, based on Gretchen's work about the financial value of natural systems. Uh, Barbara Grady, GreenBiz, the site is all about sustainable business, et cetera. Um, you know, is this kind of on the fringe of corporate America or is it kind of working its way into the core of corporate America, this idea that the economics and environment can be friends and aligned? I think it's slowly working its way into the core of business because they're realizing the value of sustaining the things that they need be it water, land, um, agricultural goods that will not ruin the land for future growing of crops. And there's also their consumers and their customers. They're, there's much more consumer scrutiny of what companies are doing these days, so they realize it's a, there's a reputational risk if they do not take care of the environment. If I might, you know, Gretchen was talking about the difference between uh, the 20th century and the 21st, and I think some of that is the difference between environmentalism and sustainability. So environmentalism at its core is against something. So all the environmental laws in the United States, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, Endangered Species Act, Superfund, all these laws, as necessary as they are, we're fundamentally saying, no, stop it, don't move, this is the limit. And those laws were critical when, when pollution was out of control. The question now is, after we've internalized a lot of those problems into normal business practice, and compliance is uh, commonplace. How do you move from a place of uh, simply trying to stop bad things and asking instead, how would you make products and services in a sustainable manner? It's a totally different kind of question and a much more challenging one. And Adam Davis, do you support the deregulation that the Trump administration is, is pursuing now, which is get rid of all of those stop limits, take off the, the handcuffs? Do you support that? Not at all. Uh, matter of fact, just like uh, a referee on a football field or an umpire in a baseball game is critical to the game, you've got to have rules and you've got to have clarity. I think most of the large businesses in America, the majority, would tell you that they don't want the environmental laws to be all taken away. What they want is fairness and efficiency in following the law. They don't like to play let's make a deal. They don't like confusing, complicated uh, regulations. But clear regulations that provide limits that tell you what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do are good for business. Barbara Gade, is that true? You tend to cover the greener companies, but you also cover some pretty dirty ones. Is that true? Yeah. Well, I think it's true. And there's another aspect of it. I think in the past... I don't know how long Gretchen would know, but supply chains are much more in focus than they were in the past, and companies are running into the limits of water and the limits of a whole range of resources that they've depended on in faraway places. And when there's droughts and there's um, water contamination and in, in various places that they have little control over because it's a far-flung operation or because the supply chain is three steps removed from their direct operations. They want some form of order and regulation to know what they can rely on. Gretchen Daly, uh, China has a new concept called GEP rather than GDP. <coughs> so tell us what they're doing there. And in some ways, uh, their, their form of uh, state-run capitalism is kind of greener than our own. Well, China is a fascinating case today. 
We read mostly about the disasters unfolding in land, air, and water across the country, but the current president, Xi Jinping, is widely quoted now for saying something loosely translated as clean water and lush mountains are gold and silver. We will not trade them for gold or silver. And he's called for <clears throat> exactly what we need everywhere, and that is a systematic way of tracking how we're doing when it comes to our natural capital, the lands, water, and biodiversity, all the life forms, the machinery of nature that keeps the biosphere, that beautiful thin layer of life around Earth's surface, functioning and supporting all life. And what Xi Jinping has asked for is a metric and a whole system of accounts to go alongside GDP, gross domestic product, to allow for judging performance, for <clears throat> investment across the country. And this new metric is called gross ecosystem product. Mm -hmm. And it'll measure and track across China, every province, every little county and cities, you know, how much value is there in the land and in the, you know, in that clear water and in the lush mountains, that gold and silver supporting different aspects of human well-being and of just the very natural systems and nature that, that does in some ways have immeasurable value um, when we think most deeply about it. But this system is something that we need everywhere, and we're just starting to see emerge. And when you mentioned, Barbara, traceability and supply chains, for example, we're starting to be able, with the data revolution and the technologies that go with it, to see actually and trace you know, our breakfast, <clears throat> where we got the tea or the coffee that we're drinking, where we, the cereals came from, how they were packaged up and sent to us, and and really begin to illuminate our own impacts and the ways in which we could influence <clears throat> all those producers out there. There's lots of uh, certifications out there uh, for guiding that consumer to make that decision, and, and, uh, but it's pretty perplexing because there's so many labels out there and, and greenwashing is, is so prevalent. How is a consumer supposed to know? I mean, you could spend you know, a lot of time just thinking about your tea and then you got your cereal and then you got your muffin and your bread and you're like, by the time you're, you know, you, you know, you spend hours figuring out your breakfast. So how is that information? I agree. <laughs> it's super confusing. Now, I just was living in Sweden for a couple of years where they've taken this to a fine art and my kids, young teenagers now were constantly, you know, standing there at the grocery cart weighing the merits of the 12 yogurts we could buy <laughs> and stuff like that. And it was really hard to tell. But I think um, we're on the cusp of a revolution there and that some of these big companies, Unilever is one that stands out with Paul Pullman having as CEO declared that they're gonna eliminate deforestation from the supply chain. You know, it's, that is an opportunity for us citizens to get on the ball and make sure that those commitments are actually lived up to. <clears throat> and that means enabling this, this tracing of products. It also means, um, you know, the group I'm heavily involved in the Natural Capital Project, developing software tools that are easy to use, that let you make sense of some of that and boil it down to much simpler kind of comparable metrics as to the impacts on 
say, the climate system or on water quality or on biodiversity of different products. And we've actually worked on um, plastics <clears throat> in packaging. You know, should you have bioplastics that come from different bio feedstocks like corn or others? Or should we have petroleum-based plastics? And these, you know, Adam and I could laugh. I know he knows a lot more about this than most. And um, you could go in circles thinking about the full life cycle assessment and stuff. But I think we're going a lot further today with um, the technology out there for tracing and for really understanding what the impacts are of different choices. So I'd say it's frustrating now, but I think we've got to keep pushing and we're going to get the clarity what we need. It's sort of like the dashboard on your car. Yeah. A car is an amazingly complicated thing and people don't really understand how it works. But if you get in and look at the basic information on the dashboard, you can make a decision about what to do. And I think that's happening both in consumer products and through certifications. Uh, and also through things like ecosystem service measurements. So things that used to be completely abstract, like carbon, wa water value, and biodiversity, most of all probably, those three things now have much more uh, substantial metrics that are quantifiable and repeatable, and then people can make sense of them and use them. We're talking about how to align profits with the planet on today's Climate One. You can subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the business of sustainability with Gretchen Daly, professor of environmental science at Stanford University, Adam Davis, managing partner of Ecosystem Investment Partners, and Barbara Grady, senior writer at Green Biz. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Walmart's been a leader in the sustainability area, particularly since 2005 when their CEO gave a famous talk saying they wanted to get on board. Uh, they've stepped out on climate change. We spoke with Brittany Furrow, director of Walmart's corporate sustainability team. Let's listen. My name is Brittany Furrow. I've been working for Walmart for six years, and I'm a senior director in our corporate sustainability team. There's many, many issues where we could do better and want to have a positive impact from energy and emissions to waste and water and deforestation and so project gigaton is a collective goal with our suppliers to work on energy efficiency renewable energy and a variety of ways to reduce emissions by one gigaton by the year 2030. we've had about 45 suppliers make commitments to the program Lando Lakes, a dairy supplier, General Mills, who supplies a lot of breakfast and snack goods, Unilever, who supplies a lot of food products and consumable products. These companies have set commitments to help optimize the fertilizer practices in corn reduction, which will ultimately reduce the emissions from producing that ingredient. Many of our suppliers are right there with us, happy to be leaders, and I do think they understand that it's good for their business in terms of long-term energy sources. It's good for their business in terms of stability in the communities where we grow and produce products that are vulnerable and at risk to climate changes. And it's also good for their business in terms of growth and sales. That's Brittany Furrow from Walmart. Gretchen Daly, 
Is that story as true? Is, is there any greenwashing going on there? A lot of, some well, people in urban <laughs> America hear Walmart and they kind of go, eh, it sounds good, but I'm not so sure. Yeah, I was squirming in my seat a little bit, which you <laughs> okay. might have noticed. <laughs> but um, I'd say there, <clears throat> there are two hands at work here across the world and kind of maybe even in all of our own lives. On the one hand, um, we have emerged out of the 20th century with a paradigm of thinking about what the environment is and means to us and nature and ways of extracting value from it that is just completely unsustainable. And we're actually, as I'm sure all the listeners here know well, so we won't harp on it, but we're at a real crisis moment. And then you see companies coming out on the other hand saying, we're gonna address the crisis. <clears throat> we're gonna take this on. And I feel um, it's just complex. We can't say, oh, it's all good or all bad. We have to be really open-eyed and kind of skeptical and realistic. At the same time, we really have to get behind and support the pioneers that are driving the change in our thinking and our culture. And then with that, opening up the possibility of new ways of doing things. So I feel that <clears throat> these leading companies are pioneering new ways of doing things. If no one judges them, who knows if they'll really go anywhere with that. It's easy to slip back into the old um, easier profits and stuff, but there's huge incentive, and I'm sure Adam and Barb you know, can elaborate more, to change now. And there are many legitimate leaders out there deeply concerned at a personal level and also uh, recognizing their responsibility as leaders in this corporate enterprise that really governs the planet and trying to change it. Barbara Grady, Walmart can have a lot of impact given their scale and they reduce packaging on something, they can really have an impact, but yet underneath, they want more sales, more consumption. I just wanted to say, if I can back up a little bit, I, I think Walmart didn't go there by themselves. They were very involved with the Environmental Defense Fund in figuring out to these sustainability steps. And this is happening with a number of environmental NGOs collaborating with companies to kind of push them, to move them beyond their comfort level. And my understanding of that situation is the Environmental Defense Fund kind of challenged them, take a lead on this, look what's happening, and kind of push them. And they went along with it, and they have become a leader, and their uh, customers and suppliers are following. One big victory this particular year was um, this past half year, Smithfield Foods, which is kind of the largest pork producer, I guess. They sell their stuff to Walmart, and Walmart sells it to consumers. Changed their whole system out so to reduce emissions by like 25% and change how they deal with their hog farms to you maybe remember reading about methane emissions from North Carolina when all that rain was happening about half a year ago it was like a huge problem all over the state. And they too worked with the Environmental Defense Fund. And I know that the World Wildlife Fund and the World Resources Institute, they're all collaborating with businesses to move them forward. Adam Davis. Well, uh, I would just say that Walmart wouldn't uh, deny that they have enormous impacts. Neither sure. would Unilever. Uh, nor would 3M or Ford or anybody who has a major business. But 
that doesn't mean they can't also be leaders in solving problems. Matter of fact, I would argue that if you want to solve a problem, you've got to go where the problem is. And the, the problem isn't just in Ben and Jerry's ice cream and Tom's toothpaste. It's in transportation and mining and energy and be, making buildings and the, the real stuff of our economy where most of us work and where all of us consume products from. So if we're going to make progress in this, we obviously have to engage uh, with all these folks. But what underlies e all of this is more, is growth. And the incentives for the CEOs of those companies is compounded quarterly growth, more and more, which means sucking more stuff out of the ground, selling more stuff to us. And it's that part that, that none of these companies are kind of scratching the surface. But that driver, Adam Davis, that ultimately, where does that head? So, so that's only half the story, right? Because half the story is growth and half the story is efficiency. If you can make more money with less inputs, that's more profit. That's a good thing for business. And some people would say the technology industry is doing that because it's more virtual. It's not as kind of bricks and mortar, tangible things. Well, they end, up, they end up promoting the production of and, and the consumption of goods and services. So <laughs> the information folks are not off the hook in, in my point of view at all. But what I would say is that uh, if you look at where things come from and where they go, right? Everything starts with primary resource extraction. So mining, agriculture, oil, and timber, right? That's where everything comes from. Everything in this room, everything we're wearing, it all comes from those four places. And at the end of the system, you have landfills. And in between, you have this enormous system of trans uh, manufacturing, transportation, distribution, retailing, consumption, and so on. Everyone in the middle has an incentive to be efficient. But the people at the beginning and the end get paid by the ton. So it's about recognizing the fundamental incentives that people respond to as they make their business decisions and working through policy to make the incentives line up so that you can outcompete through environmental performance. And when you get the policy right, the more good you do, the more money you make. If you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, nature and capitalism at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are the Stanford professor Gretchen Daly. You just heard from investor Adam Davis, and we have reporter Barbara Grady. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask you a true or false question uh, for each of you, <laughs> starting with Adam Davis. True or false, you enjoy hunting? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Barbara Grady, you enjoy hunting? No, I don't. Gretchen Daly, hunters are some of the most ardent conservationists. True. <laughs> also for Gretchen Daly, the hundreds of millions of dollars Stanford and other universities have received from fossil fuel companies compromises the independence of environmental and energy research. Hmm. I'd say... <laughs> <laughs> I have some worries there. <laughs> okay, that's a hmm. Uh, <clears throat> Okay, this is an association, so I, I'm going to mention a noun or something, and you're going to give me your unfiltered uh, first thought without regard for what your mom or your boss or anyone else might think. Barbara Grady, Chevron. Not a good neighbor. Adam Davis, blue jeans. Levi's. Dying of clothes is one of the biggest environmental uh, impacts. Uh, Gretchen Daly, Ryan Zinke, U.S. Secretary of the Interior. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. I'm going to okay. need a therapy session after this. <laughs> <laughs> Any therapists in the house? Can we yeah. Yeah. Okay. Also for Gretchen Daly, the Lorax. I, okay, I'll say Buddhist philosophy. 
quite powerful. Adam Davis, Al Gore. Leadership. Uh, Gretchen Daly, nuclear power. Hmm. Trade-offs. <laughs> Barbara Grady, hydrogen-powered cars. Good thing. I would say part of the future, and they always will be. Um, last one. <laughs> True or false, Gretchen Daly, you're going to invest your half-million-dollar award, half in Exxon stock, and half in ecosystem restoration. False. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's our last one. There Let's give go. them a round for getting through the gauntlet of the climate one. Population is something that, that environmentalists don't like to talk about. Gretchen Daly, uh, you were mentored by Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb, I think 50 years ago this mm. year or next year ago? 68, I think. Okay, so a lot of people criticize him for saying, ah, the boom you forecast didn't mm -hmm. happen. It might have been just a matter of time. But we can talk about all these things, but it feels like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, if we're really going to... Al Gore said to me the other day, 11 billion people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, actually. I was, in fact, um, with Paul Ehrlich and a bunch of other economists and um, ecologists at a meeting that the Pope convened at the Vatican. Population mm -hmm. was one of the topics. And, um, at the, va wait, at the Vatican. Okay, all right, okay. And um, the... <laughs> You know, I think everybody sees that Earth, you know, we know what it looks like now from outer space. It's that little blue ball out there, and it's not going to hold an infinite number of people. And the question is, how do we um, turn that understanding into, you know, compassionate, effective kinds of incentives for a sustainable path? And um, it requires understanding, you know, why people have the number of kids that they do. And there are a lot of really good reasons to have um, large families. And <clears throat> until we address those reasons, um, which include things like having labor to help run the farm, having security in one's old age or ill health, and, um, you know, just maybe not having other options... Um, for controlling one's fertility or one's livelihood. So I feel there are compassionate paths that will need more nurturing to enable people. Right now, many, many women are having more children than they would choose to have. And we want all children to be wanted children who can be supported in a healthy life and have the possibility of achieving their aspirations with, with dignity and, and all of that. And in so much of the world, that's just not the case. So when you look back at the population bomb, I think some of it was written in a scary style um, that, you know, is dated in a sense now, but it's the way people spoke and wrote back in those days. And I feel, you know, much of what was um, visualized in there has come to pass, unfortunately. Hundreds of millions of people have died of hunger and hunger-related disease over the years, and they die silently and invisibly. So we think, oh, it's, it's not happening, but it is happening. And um, we now have, you know, a couple billion people, at least, living lifestyles that we would never voluntarily trade for. 
and unless we open our eyes as a society and as individuals and understand um, the situation more and the, the role that population plays in intensifying our challenges, you know, we're not going to really get to the dream. Um, Adam's sort of laying out now that, you know, the future, it's about sustainability and that balance between you know, people and what, what this beauti- big, beautiful ball can prob- possibly support at a um, level at, at which we'd all want to live in the future. Adam Davis, you've said uh, that U.S. population probably going to 400 million. That means there's going to be a lot more natural impacts, roads, people, footprints going to get bigger. Um, is that, you know, how are we going to handle that? Well, Paul Ehrlich said in The Population Bomb that impact equals population times affluence times technology. And while I don't think we're going to get out of this scot-free, there will be major impacts on communities around the world as we expand our population to 11 billion. But if we have a hope, it's being innovative and efficient in our use of resources and our allocation of resources. That's our hope. The population will grow. That is going to happen. And so then the question is, how can you create abundance and affluence with a technology and an approach to living that is way more efficient and effective, that addresses impacts scientifically and offsets them, and that creates real incentives for people to do the right thing up and down the system? So just in the United States, as the population is going from 300 million to 400 million, we're building lots of new roads and lots of new energy infrastructure and lots of new you know, schools and housing and commercial developments. All that stuff is happening. One of the things that we've done since 1972 is we've required an offset for impacts to our waters, the waters of the United States. So an impact to a wetland or a stream has to be offset acre for acre with restoration in the same watershed. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that a little company like ours has raised $500 million just in the past five years exclusively for ecological restoration. It doesn't address the giant issue of population worldwide, I realize that, but it's a great example of how private capital is being harnessed through scientifically verifiable restoration to address the impacts of development so that as development occurs, you've got an offset that actually meaningfully makes up for the impact. What happens then is that the road or the school or the commercial development is more ethical than it would be otherwise, right? It still happens, but there's a meaningful connection between the development and the economy and the nature that supports it. And you think that we spent a lot of money on some some keystone uh, restoration projects in this country, the Everglades, the Great Lakes, the Mississippi, $12 billion for the Bay Delta here in, in California. Has that money been well spent? Has that been well stewarded by the government? I think that the folks that were responsible for putting that money to work were doing the best they could within the circumstances they faced. So the folks who are in charge of CalFed here in California, that were responsible for implementing uh, restoration of the Bay Delta, were responding to demand from constituents, right? The science community wanted more science. Advocacy wanted more advocacy. The regulators wanted more regulation and so on. But there was very little voice for actually buying scientifically verifiable units of restoration on the ground. And that's the stuff that actually would fix the Delta. 
So the problem with what we've done in the past is that the money has been spent, lots of money, but not buying the things that actually fix the problem. And, and that's beginning to change. Uh, California just recently, the Department of Water Resources just issued an RFP for the private sector and private landowners in the Delta to bid on restoration on a per unit basis. That first round is now complete. The state of Louisiana just passed legislation that allows up to $250 million in bids for private investment in restoration. It's creating a restoration economy and a restoration sector. A, a recent report from University of North Carolina um, describes 220,000 jobs a year in the United States connected to ecological restoration. Um, $25 billion in economic activity tied to ecological restoration. This is a really exciting trend because it means that environment isn't just a cost center, it's a business. You can actually make money doing good things. That's a good thing for the kind of problem we're talking about. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about aligning profits with the planet. You can check out our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about making money doing good things for the environment with Gretchen Daly, professor of environmental science at Stanford University, Adam Davis, managing partner of Ecosystem Investment Partners, and Barbara Grady, senior writer at Green Biz. Here's Greg. Gretchen Daly, we've been talking a lot about water. Uh, is it a right or a commodity? Okay. You know, everybody should have water, let's face it, right? We can't live without water. We, if we're a leader in a society, it should be our responsibility to ensure that people have access, have sort of the right to water. But at the same time, to do so means getting really strategic and practical now that every scrap of land and every drop of water with our burgeoning population, you know, is it's a zero-sum game. And um, assigning value to something I don't think reduces its value necessarily. So, for example, if we're trying to assign value to water to limit overuse of it, it's, in a way it's like charging people at a buffet rather than having an all-you-eat-can-eat buffet where kids and everybody I know, I go along getting all the desserts, um, <laughs> you know, uh, charge a price, assign some table manners. That's what we're talking about in most of this. So it's not kind of one or the other. I think um, we need to both state our values, but then recognize who we are as a species and develop um, policies and kind of incentives that rules of the game that, you know, make us play fairly with one another and achieve an outcome that we all aspire to. Not everyone agrees. We've been talking a lot about yeah. the assigning of economic value, bringing capitalism to uh, areas, perhaps indigenous cultures, et cetera, uh, and bringing markets, and a lot of times those outside people. Not everyone agrees with the commercialization of the environment. Uh, Amazon Watch Executive Director Lila Salazar-Lopez is one of them. Let's listen. Green capitalism is is not is not going to save the Amazon. One of our big concerns right now, um, and for many years, has been the commodification of forests, or the commodification of trees, or the commodification of nature. Do we have to put a price on 
on trees? Do we have to put a price on rivers? Do we have to put a price on forests in order to protect them? We don't believe so. We believe that if indigenous peoples and traditional peoples have the rights and territories to their, their forests, they will protect them. And the solutions don't always come from the dominant society. That was Leila Salazar Lopez, executive director of Amazon Watch. Gretchen Deal, I'd like to get your response to, to that. Yeah, at one level, I agree with her completely and feel that robbing indigenous peoples of their homes of hundreds to thousands of years and um, <clears throat> denying their stewardship of those places is utterly wrong and kind of against all of our interests. At the same time, when you look at <clears throat> the threats to the Amazon, one of the threats is climate change and also sort of deforestation by people other than indigenous people. And um, these threats really need to be addressed head on. We're in a capitalist system that none of us invented, but we've inherited it. And <clears throat> in a way, we've got to confront it. Um, and so in that arena, I feel that the countries, for example, most responsible for driving climate change need to um, live up to that responsibility in a way and address it and help protect the Amazon, which is um, just a crucial part of the whole planet's life support systems. If the Amazon disappears, it's going to have massive impacts absolutely everywhere. Um, so at that level, indigenous people alone are not going to be able to save the Amazon. So um, there's a complexity here, as in most things. I've, and I think um, a dual approach of securing indigenous people's rights to lands that they have stewarded really well over millennia in their culture, and then at the same time, developing incentives to achieve the sustainable outcome we want on the part of all the other players influencing the Amazon is crucial. And that involves confronting and using our capitalist system. Adam Davis, then we're gonna to go to audience questions. So the fundamental question that was raised there is about whether it's right or wrong to commodify nature. If you look at American environmental policy, we actually started uh, with command and control regulation that basically said stop the pollution, stop the damage, right? without regard to whether nature was a commodity or not. It basically said, here's a limit on water pollution, here's a limit on air pollution, uh, there's no net loss of wetlands, uh, here are uh, limits for toxics and so on, right? It wasn't about commodification, it was about trying to stop bad things. Mm -hmm. The problem is that there, there is no particular limit that's the right limit, right? You can always whatever number you pick is a compromise, and, and let's say it's 10 parts per million, that's the answer that you come up with. That means you're just fine at nine parts per million, everything's fine, but at 11 parts per million, you're a criminal. And that, that can't be right, because if 11 makes you a criminal, then it's not just fine at nine, and so on. The, the challenge then is to go beyond that and to actually reward behaviors on land uh, that protect the water and the sponge that Gretchen was talking about, protect the waters of the United States, protect the species and their habitats, and so on. To say that we shouldn't commodify nature, we shouldn't put a price on it, I, I think is fundamentally misguided, in the United States at least, because we've already put a number on it. 
That's the problem, is that any landowner, any piece of land in the U.S. has already been appraised. Uh, if you ask a landowner how much their trees are worth, they know how much the trees are worth. Dead, but not but alive. They're only worth money if you cut them down. Yeah. So to say you shouldn't commodify nature is to say we shouldn't have a price on the tree if you cut it down. We shouldn't have a price on the coal if you dig it up, and so on. But there is a price on all those things. It's real estate and natural resources. And it commands the economy. And so in order to combat that, we need a countervailing economic force, which is the value of nature, not by building on it or taking from it, but paying people for what it does in, in terms of clean water, resilient living systems, and a stable climate. We've got to pay people for those things. And recognize that. Let's, we're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, uh, my name is Paul Passimino. I'm actually the associate director at Amazon Watch and very interested to be here today. Um, I guess my, my question goes to your discussion about your mentioning China before. About a week ago, Amazon Watch had an op-ed in the New York Times about China's investments in Latin America, specifically billions of dollars in loans and investments in resource extraction work, drilling the Amazon, for oil, construction of large hydroelectric dams, which are devastating to the climate, especially in the short run. While at home, you know, we've heard what you said about what they're trying to do there, but this unburned oil, which would be about 10 days of global oil supply in the entire Amazon, how do we put a price on that? Because if they drill that, if they create the roads, if they destroy the indigenous communities that are there, if they build all that they're planning to do, and the Amazon is deforested past the tipping point, there's no way to keep us below a four degree rise. Thanks. That's game over. So, How do you quantify that? Yeah, you're raising a heart stopping issue. And I you know, thank you for bringing that up. And I would say, um, number one, that um, we have to celebrate that China is looking domestically at cleaning up what it created in the 20th century and getting onto a brand new path going forward. They've declared a few years ago in 2014 that they want to become the ecological civilization of the 21st century. So that's something to celebrate, and there's a lot behind that. For example, they're paying about 200 million people within China every day to restore ecosystems, to enhance the provision of key services like flood control or water quality um, improvement or sandstorm control or even um, maintaining wildlife. But then you get to what's happening globally. I mean, number one, we don't even know whether this is going to play out in favor of nature in China, right? There are a lot of forces at play and it's a vast struggle. But globally, there's a huge worry about their impact. The strategy now is to try and change the culture and the policy of investments and development, especially infrastructure development, mining and extraction, everything are pointing to within the country, but very rapidly. We're already working with key investors now on the Amazon. And the big um, you know, worry is that road meant to, they call it the Twin Oceans Highway that would connect the Atlantic to the Pacific and potentially be utterly devastating in effect. And um, there's still a bit of time to intervene in that, but it's a race. 
and it's not clear how this race is going to play out. Uh, Adam Davis? This reminds me of a story I once heard where there was a talk about environmental markets and how you create incentives for things. And a guy said, you know, I live in an area where there's these uh, precious endangered turtles, and they're on the beach, and people are driving their cars up and down the beach and killing the turtles. What kind of incentive should you have for that situation? And the guy said, just tell them no. There's no driving on the beach. That's the answer to some problems. It's just no. And so I'm a huge fan, as you've heard, about incentives and trying to align behavior and reward people for the right thing. But there are cases where the answer should simply be no. And so that's going to require activism and fighting back and really protesting and doing all sorts of things. You know, I tend to work in the business side of things with institutional investors and so on. But I respect the work of Greenpeace and Defenders of Wildlife and Center for Biological Diversity, the people who sue to enforce laws. That's a critical part of the puzzle. So I, I don't know enough about the situation in the Amazon to have an intelligent even suggestion for what to do there. But it sounds like it may be one of those things where the answer is simply no. There has been uh, some efforts in the Amazon, I think it was Ecuador, where they said, okay, we're going to leave this oil on the ground. Who's going to pay us for the value of that oil? And mm -hmm. that money wasn't forthcoming, right? It's like, because mm -hmm. you're a head of state, your job is to get your people out of poverty. Mm -hmm. You want to have those resources. And if they got paid to leave them in the ground, same for U.S. coal companies, et cetera, if they were paid to keep them in the ground, they might do that. But that money didn't come forward. Barbara Grady. Well, there's a, a reversal to that. If they... You've heard a lot of talk now about pricing carbon. Mm -hmm. So if carbon were priced, the value of taking that oil out of the ground would go way down because there would be a disincentive to burn it. And therefore, there would be a slowing down of destruction of the Amazon, a whole lot of other things that we're, we're upset about. And I think that's what needs to happen, is if there was a worldwide market or agreement on pricing carbon, and we're almost there, actually, because the conversation keeps coming up, and we have more, we have more mm -hmm. countries and states, California being a leader, uh, you know, pricing carbon. There has to be that disincentive to burning fossil fuels. Right, and China is doing that. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for the panel tonight. Always enjoy coming here and bringing up these discussions. I think one of the things that's important is sort of what we take away and maybe what we can share with others. And just building upon that, I was wondering, Barbara, at GreenBiz and some articles that we could look, I think one of the main things that we've talked about is paradigm shift. And you know, how can you align incentives? How can we make this change? Just wondering, in the last few years, something that you've reported on or, or found that really sticks out in terms of a company or a group of people that are leading that change and helping push forward to help us think in a different way or align incentives for a more sustainable future? Okay, um, I would name Unilever, which whom Gretchen mentioned. Um, there are, and Michael Bloomberg, <laughs> I mean, there are definitely business leaders out there that are, are very much, we've got to change what we're doing. We cannot keep doing business as usual. And um, Unilever's CEO is one of them. Um, there are small companies, Method Soap, is doing amazing things, and I think we should all reward them by buying Method Soap because they're they're so sustainable in what they do, and they're so conscious of resources that they, you know, are preserving. That um, there are some good 
food companies. Orlando Lakes is very conscientious. Kellogg is pretty good. General Mills is pretty good. Um, and so as consumers, we can reward those companies and avoid others. There, there's actually a study from Oxfam behind the brands that Barbara told me about, and they ranked a number of brands. Unilever was number one, Nestle number two, Coca-Cola number three, Kellogg's four, and Mars five. Now, this was complex. They actually graded the companies on land, women, farmers, workers, climate, water, lots of different things, kind of a grade in, in each area. You pick which one's most important to you. Um, actually, at the bottom, uh, Danone, the, the French uh, food and, and dairy company, and, and also uh, General Mills. You might find different things. You know, they might come out good in one area, but not so good in the others. But that's Oxfam ranking those consumer brands by all of those things. Um, I want to wrap up by asking about something we haven't quite touched on, and that is the circular economy. Gretchen Daly, tell us what that is. Well, I think the idea there is just, um, you know, that whatever we generate in terms of impact on our big, beautiful sphere, that that be kind of integrated into all the life support processes and leave no net you know, negative impact. And um, the idea in bringing it in into our economy is to drive us toward consuming things that are produced in a sustainable way, that whose production could continue indefinitely if under the practices that we had now and into, you know, at the end of the life, however we get rid of stuff, that that would be sustainable too. And we are seeing a big um, shift in some areas. Um, I'm, it's, it's just exhilarating, for example, seeing the shift to cleaner energy. We just bought a leaf, and um, my kids love driving around in this leaf and having solar cells on the roof, and a lot of that was thanks to you know, subsidies offered through the state of California and even federally. So we got to keep moving toward um, a situation where if you imagined a dome over where we live, where everything going on in that dome, you know, you could just live happily and you didn't need to bring in stuff from the outside or throw it out across the fence into another part of the world. Um, so I think if we step back, what we're trying to get to kind of in closing here, is a common language and framework for guiding all of that and accounting for the dependence of all of us, all these intricate connections between people and nature, whether it's thinking about the little bees that helped pollinate the coffee we drank this morning, all the way through to trees in the Amazon that are helping to stabilize the climate that we were so lucky to live in, be born into. And um, the circular economy is, is one framework for helping to kind of make all that happen and guide us as we're going and show where, like in a dashboard, you know, you're going off the tracks. Greg Dalton has been talking with Gretchen Daly, professor of environmental science at Stanford University and recent winner of the Blue Planet Prize. Adam Davis, managing partner of Ecosystem Investment Partners, which helps people make money cleaning up the environment. And Barbara Grady, senior writer at Green Biz. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. 
Please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.